A garrison is a safe place where an army gathers. In the same way, the Disability Garrison podcast is a place for the army of disability rights advocates to gather and discuss complex issues. We are unafraid to identify problems in our world and have difficult conversations about them. But we are not just here to complain. We spend our time brainstorming solutions with generals in the disability rights movement. Together, we take action to make positive change and lead the fight for justice and equality. My name is Hallie Carmichael. My name is Michael Murray. This is the Disability Garrison. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode, we had the opportunity to speak with Sunny Seferati, a woman who was stuck in a sheltered workshop for eight years. Here is some of what she told us about her experience. My full name is Laura Sun Seferati. People call me Sunny or Laura Sun is fine. I co-founded The Musical Artist with my support broker in 2011. And I started Sunshine Music and Speaking which is a business of where I get paid to perform musical performances and public speaking and advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. And eventually I want to do this for a living. That's my career, but what I like to do for fun is listen to music and talk on the phone with my friends and spend time with my friends. Upon graduating from Maryland School for the Blind, I was placed in a sheltered workshop for eight years. Because that is where my parents and the school system decided that's where I should go. The school system did not realize how capable I really was to be an active member in the community. So for eight years, I was stuck in a sheltered workshop. And a sheltered workshop is a segregated environment for people with disabilities to go to so that their parents or their caregivers can go to work. A lot of times they get paid sub-minimum wage for doing contract work or piece work. And a lot of times, if there's no work, they just sit around waiting for work to come. It's basically like adults being babysat. And for people like me, who are perfectly capable of being a part of the community, we don't need to be babysat by a bunch of adults in a shelter workshop. I mean, there was like a hundred of us in one room crammed. As the years went on, I realized that this is not the best place for me to be. I've had more negative things happen to me than positive things happen to me. I've been taken advantage of by various individuals. I've had my things broken by an individual. My independence was definitely impeded. I was not allowed to walk around the building independently because the sheltered workshop did not want to be liable in case I got hurt by somebody having a behavior problem. For eight years, I was in a prison. I did not have the freedom to go where I wanted to go. I did not have the freedom to do what I wanted to do. I realized that shelter workshops is not the place for me to be. I got paid sub-minimum wage for doing piecework. Some of the stuff I did was counting flyers, assembling things, putting products together. And the last paycheck I got when I left the shelter workshop was $2 and some change within two weeks worth of work. After an incident that had happened in the shelter workshop, 
My parents and I realized that it was a big mistake for me to go into the shelter workshop. When I got out of the shelter workshop, when I finally broke out, I was like, yes, this is a relief. I felt like I got my life back. And now that I'm in self-direction, you know, I'm thriving, I'm blossoming, and I speak out. And my goal is to see sheltered workshops phased out because people who are perfectly capable of being in the community don't need to be there. And I've been advocating by speaking on numerous podcasts and saying, you know, you guys, the system is broken. People who go in shelter workshops are part of a broken system. And so the solution is families need to be educated. School systems need to be educated. I advocate that you do not default to the shelter workshop avenue. You explore your options. You know, when I was at Maryland School for the Blind, nobody asked me, Sonny, what do you want to do after you graduate? What is your dream job? Nope, those questions were not asked. Here's what they said. You're going into a sheltered workshop. This is where you are going. And so one of the things I advocate for on podcasts like this and others is families, school educators, you guys need to look at all of the options and not just default to one. Wow. Holly, that was, I mean, I, I think I say this every time we start our podcast, but Sonny's story really just hits home the topic that we're discussing today. Yeah, she has an incredible testimony, not only on, on our topic today, but just on on this idea of self-determination in general, this inalienable right of, of people to be deemed capable, to, to have the freedom to do what they want, to go where they want to go. And yeah, her story is pretty powerful. So powerful. And I'm excited to introduce our second guest speaker on the podcast. We're doing two guest speakers because this is such a, a rich topic and we felt like uh, we needed two incredible folks and we gave uh, we really wanted to give Sunny her uh, time to just tell her story uh, in a full uh, and clear way. And, and the, the uh, solutions that she came up with are really powerful. And then today we have Serena Lowe. Yes. Tell, uh, uh, tell our guests about who Serena Lowe is. <laughs> Serena Lowe is a longtime friend of mine. Um, she is a self-proclaimed policy geek um, who has spent uh, 20 plus years in leadership roles. Um, you know, she was acting uh, executive director for TASH. She was a senior policy advisor on the administration for community living. Um, doing incredible work around HCBS. Her and I really crossed paths. You know, my background is in employment and employment for people with disabilities and her work at the U.S. Department of Labor had an incredible impact, but she's also worked for biopharmaceutical companies and lobbying firms and two members of Congress. I mean, the, the, the list goes on. And so we are really just proud to have Serena on here. Serena, hi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's such a pleasure. And it's really hard to come at the heels of such a wonderful advocate as, as uh, Sunny, um, who really described so well the systemic discrimination that continues to persist through this 
antiquated federal law mm. on people and workers with disabilities. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and let's jump straight in. What is 14C? What is the Fair Labor Standards Act? So 14C is a very uh, ambiguous provision in the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was signed into law back in 1938 um, by then President Franklin D. Roosevelt. And it was, it was intended at the time to promote and encourage private companies who were seeing uh, labor shortages, but were hesitant about hiring veterans who had come back from armed conflict um, with significant disabilities, uh, whether they be physical or, or mental or cognitive in nature. And it was an, to really try to encourage employers, large employers, to hire these veterans back into the generic workforce. But, you know, that was over 80 years ago. That was, our economy was very different then. 80 there years was, ago. You know, there was no dot-com. Uh, there, there was no, you know, there were no computers. There was, you know, it was, it was a very different time. Just to give you a sense of how long ago that was, that was the year that Snow White came out for the first time ever by Disney. Wow. You know, that was the time, that was the year that DuPont came out with this new exciting synthetic fiber known as nylon. Wow. Okay. This was a really long time ago. And this provision has gone unchanged since the law was enacted. And, And what the, what it allows is not only private companies, but nonprofit entities and schools that operate work programs to receive a special wage certificate uh, that allows them to hire people with disabilities and pay them under the federal minimum wage. And it's based upon a very convoluted productivity scale that is also very outdated, something that was like around, you know, when people, when some of our, you know, first great thinkers during the industrial revolution was trying to measure productivity. There were these scales that, you know, and tests that, that they created to time people. It's a very narrow and rigid way of looking at one's productivity level. And it's something that nobody is required to do now except you know to get a job or to justify receiving a wage that's minimum wage or higher except for workers with significant disabilities yeah so serena we heard sunny use a few terms um like sheltered workshop or and and you referenced the subminimum wage what are other terms that are used around 14c that that listeners should be aware of and, and how low can these wages actually go a uh, great question so the terms she used known as sheltered workshops are typically run by nonprofit community-based organizations some that you might be familiar with in your local neighborhood might be a or an Easter Seals or an um, Industries for the Blind. They're usually large warehouses. 
if you were to walk in, you'd see something that actually looks a lot like 1938, people doing what's known as piecemeal work, sitting at tables, lots of people with disabilities uh, sitting around doing widget work, work that you would see in a, in a traditional factory um, in a lot of cases. Um, and that's what's known as a sheltered workshop. Um, and, and that's a, the term that has been used to describe these places. It's not the only place that you see some minimum wages though. There's a national pizza chain that um, shall remain unnamed in this that um, continues to still hold on to a few 14C subminimum wage certificates Ridiculous. in the country um, to support people who are back there, just like other kitchen workers, helping wash dishes and wow. make pizzas. And they're paying them subminimum wages. And to your question, how low it can be, um, we know that there are people who have been paid 16 cents for a day's work wow. or less than $20 for two weeks of work mm. full time. Wow. So it really varies. And it's the, the holder of the special wage certificate, the employer has a lot of autonomy in determining what gets paid again, based on this very archaic and old way of determining one's productivity level. Yeah, and and that no one else is using anymore. Like yeah, literally, yeah. nobody else is is. If you were to look at my productivity using this this scale, uh, nobody would continue to work there. That's yeah. ridiculous. You know, imagine you were you know you go into a store, a Target, and you go around and start asking people to demonstrate their productivity as a requirement for being onboarded in the job. You know, you you'd have an uprising, and rightfully so. You know, we've come a very far way in terms of labor rights in this country, except for this one particular, you know, population. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Holly? I've seen some of these time studies that are used. It's almost as if they, they treat the human body as if it's a machine. Like how, how long does it take to move your arm this far and, or, or pick up one piece wow. here and, you're right. It's it's outdated. It's antiquated. It's no longer used except for if you have a disability. And the reality is, is that those of us with disabilities are contributing incredible things to the workforce with innovation, creativity, new ideas, new perspectives. And I think, as you said, Serena, we're we're doing the work. We're doing the same work that other people are doing and getting put to a different standard uh, and then getting paid less for the standard that nobody else is being held to. Um, and, and I think simply put, this is wrong. Uh, it's wrong in so many different ways. And, and I think maybe we'd love to just hear, Sonny talked a little bit about some of the problems that exist, but I, I'd love to hear some of the other things. What, what are some of the staffing problems, the funding sources problems? You know, she talked about abuse and neglect that's happening in these places. Have you seen other play, things like that? Some of the fraud that, that you've seen happen, any of those kinds of larger issues? Yeah, definitely. You know, just looking back at the law again and what it was intended to do, it was based on very low expectations of people's competencies, capabilities, and even interests among workers with disabilities. And that that same dichotomy and kind of framework is what has 
led to several paternalistic systems in our country that continue to confine people, segregate into a very segregated set of circumstances um, where they're really lacking in autonomy to to live, work, or thrive in the same ways that we do. Um, in terms of the sheltered workshops and, and some of Sunny's experiences, they are things that we've heard in other places. You know, what people, do, a real misnomer actually about sheltered work is that part of the issue is that there's not enough funding. Um, these, uh, the, the sheltered workshop industry is over a $2 billion industry in this country. Wow. And, and that's, and, and by the way, that is federal tax dollars and state tax dollars going into those. It's not fueled by private sector funding. It's your tax dollars that are going into perpetuating a system that basically, again, is a little step higher than, I guess, adult daycare in that people with disabilities um, are kind of pipelined from the school system on to spend their days there. And so what you've created now is a very large, very powerful lobby of providers who, um, of the sheltered workshop entities that, that don't want, you know, for economic reasons, to do anything else, you know, it's, it's become quite a lucrative industry over the course of several decades. Um, and every time they lose someone, right, um, who might go on to do something else like Sonny did, uh, that's less money coming in to their system. So there's an, a built-in disincentive to ever help someone maybe move on to competitive integrated employment. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of leads us to our next question, but I think I know the answer. <laughs> but, but have you ever seen a way that this is done well? Are there good sub-minimum wage providers? Is there, are there situations where this is actually helpful? And if 14C were to end and sheltered workshops were closed, what impact might that have? Well, that's an interesting question. I have to answer it a little bit from a philosophical viewpoint. You either believe in a minimum wage and for all, and that means all workers, or you don't. So there is no example of someone being paid some minimum wage in this country that isn't demoralizing, dehumanizing, and basically violating their right to, you know, participate in the workforce like the rest of us. But then to your point, like, let's look at it at a psychological level. If you're paying someone some minimum wages, it means you do not value their contributions at the very, the most basic minimal level. And so what do you think that does to a person, Yes. you know, it, throughout their life or their career, what have you? You know, again, it, we, we know what the studies say um, from a very you know, small age all in the way up to, you know, throughout our lifespan, uh, people respond better through positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And paying them mm-hmm. some minimum wages basically tells them you don't value them. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, so so I would argue, no, I've never really seen it in a situation where it worked yeah. or was helpful. Well, and, and I also think on the broader sense, there is a real impact to society 
when an employer who could pay someone uh, a living wage in competitive integrated employment chooses to pay someone subminimum wage in that employer's mind uh, and in all of our minds, we're saying it is okay for us to devalue the contributions that those of us with disabilities bring to the workforce. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think, uh, like you said, Holly, we know the answer to yeah, this question, yeah. but I think it's important to ask the question. Yeah. Um, but I also, I, I think that there are proponents who would say, well, if you take this away, then my kid uh, or, or my son or daughter won't have anywhere to go during the day. Um, and, and I think that we, we have to address that and look at that in the face and talk about that uh, here, because I don't think that that sheltered work is actually the solution for that. So let's talk about yeah. that, Serena. Yeah. So, so two thoughts on, on that. First is breaking the myth that there isn't something better or that <laughs> That's right. um, this is, you know, good for a good contribution to society or what have you, you know, there, there has been research out since the early 2000s showing that not only do individuals receive more money in supported employment over um, some minimum wage employment or sheltered work, but that they contribute then as taxpayers, you know, they right. pay back into the community. Um, We're the only group of people that actually want to pay taxes. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and that um, their reliance on public benefits decreases because they need less support um, over time. Um, I, I do think and I empathize with families who feel like there isn't any other option out there. And I wish I could tell you that our publicly financed systems have built, you know, really strong models and options for for people across the country. The fact of the matter is, is that we haven't invested in evidence-based practices like customized employment, where you you really getting to person in their natural surroundings, picking up on things they're strong at and good at and excited about. And then you work with employers to negotiate a job based on unmet needs that an employer has that this person would make a great fit to. You know, we don't, we don't invest as much into that as we do, but where we have made investments since 2000, we've seen tremendous progress and it tends to be the families that really push for more for their young loved ones coming um, out of the, the school system to have access to integrated work experiences and apprenticeships and internships and the same things the rest of us do um, that tend to, to get out of this you know paradigm and on, yeah. and are offered other options. So there are really great um, evidence-based strategies out there that are working, but systemically we have to we have to change the tide of our investments. You know that that um, old adage of, or saying of you get what you pay for is absolutely right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if we continue to keep paying for these really old antiquated systems that are based on thinking about people from very low expectations. Well, and, you know, no, we, we have say, invested as GT, we've invested in uh, some incredible 
solutions, research-based solutions. Sonny talked about one of them. Holly, talk to us about self-determination and and also about GT and Project Search. Yeah, I mean, self-determination and and self-directed services in general are such a it's been shown from an evidence-based standpoint to be effective and work well uh, for individuals because it's not a one size fits all. It's not a come to this congregate setting, a hundred people crammed into a room. It's, it's individualized. It's based on that person's desires and wishes and whether that's, you know, to, to, pursue full-fledged competitive employment or to volunteer or to just be a part of their community. You get to choose that and and who does that and how how that happens. Um, We also are very proud to participate and sponsor a project search site. It's an internship opportunity to actually gain real work experience and strive for competitive employment post-graduation for students with disabilities. And so I think we're in our sixth or seventh year. Um, it's always a great time for me to attend the graduation ceremonies <laughs> and hear the stories of, of the different opportunities. Um, our partner is, is a medical facility, Gunderson Health. So there's lots of different uh, medical-based jobs that, that students gain experience in and, and have an opportunity to learn. It, you're certainly not you know, Sunny describes this this segregated site. You're it's it's fully integrated and 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 a part of the community, just as as things should be. Yeah. And and it's just one example of hundreds uh, of different best practices that we know exist out there. And when you give us as people with disabilities the opportunity to engage in uh, in the work environment and get experience. What do you know? We end up being able to do the job and ended up uh, doing really great things. I mean, you know, I'm proud to say here at GT, 10% of our employees are people with disabilities. When we committed as the federal government back in the Obama administration to hire 100,000 people with disabilities over five years, we did it. And it was because people made the commitment. When you commit to those of us with disabilities and and recognize the contributions that we bring, we will deliver. Um, and so I think that, that this antiquated 14C is, is an example of a solution that no longer works. There are so many other solutions that work. Yeah, I would just say, you know, I think Congress has heard this and seen it enough that they have also taken steps in some respects through the uh, passage of the Workforce Innovation Opportunities Act in 2014 to try to promote and invest more in these practices and these other options and strategies. And because of that, we've seen a huge decrease in the number of 14C certificates and workers with disabilities in there. Just since 2018, um, the number of 14C certificates in the country have decreased by 50%. Mm -hmm. And um, the number of people on these certificates have decreased from 124,000 to a little over 52,000. That's great news. And so we are seeing, you know, we're seeing this investment. It's because a lot of states have started to say, look, we we want something different. We're going to start paying for different things. But it is important to go back to that connection between self-direction and economic advancement or independence. You know, you heard Sunny say, 
no one had ever asked her what she wanted to do, wow. you know, or what her dream job was. No one ever asked her. They just said, this is where you're going to go. And she was in a prison and she felt like because of self-direction, she got her life back is what she said. Yes. And I mean, I've heard that probably thousands of times from individuals with disabilities who once they finally got a chance to show themselves as a human being, get to show up for their own life and make some choices of their own, were able to get a job, get their own apartment, make friends on their own. And that's the kind of work that I think we all want to continue to be a part of over time. Yeah, no, that's that's well said. With self-direction being one of the solutions, are there others that you know of to deal with subminimum wage kind of in the meantime while it still is a thing? Absolutely. There's a few things. Number one, if you're listening and you're a person with disabilities who's trying to find work and doesn't want to be in a sheltered workshop or, or, or just it does, hasn't had the opportunity yet to work, or if you're a family member, you know, I really encourage you to do some research of providers in your community, um, but also thinking about your own natural supports, friends, family, who are employers, and see what you can do to try to come up with a, you know, a work plan um, for the individual, you know, for them to pursue a career path like everyone else, get some some training, some experience, some exposure. And if you're a policymaker, you know, look at the 10 states who have already made the leap yes. in prohibiting 14C certificates, you know, and, and see how they're doing it. You know, they're, they're investing in these other models that really take one person at a time and try to support, provide them the supports they need to be an effective employee in the economic mainstream. We all need supports, you know, and supported employment, that is a, a, a term used for to, to talk about a framework of really supporting people with disabilities and however they need to complete a job. But we all need supports. Yeah, that's um, right. For some of us, our parents need supports and flexibilities when with our kids. Some of us have healthcare issues. And, you know, really all we're asking for is parity for workers with disabilities. Yeah. Not even, you know, anything extra. Just give them the opportunity to show you what they can do. Um, in terms of what people can do, you know, if you are an employer or if you're looking to, you know, give back, become a mentor of an individual with a disability, young person with a disability, um, employ someone with a disability, um, give them an internship or a work-based learning opportunity. You know, call your local VR system, vocational rehabilitation agency. Say, I, I'd like to start working with some people with disabilities. Um, talk to your policymakers at a state and federal level. Tell them you don't want your tax dollars going to things that, you know, pay people some minimum wages and and basically take advantage and exploit workers with disabilities. And then last but not least, you know, support some organizations that are doing the good work out there, one person at a time, either by helping people through self-direction 
um, or through customized or supported employment practices, you know, but helping them get into the economic mainstream, become, a, you know, an, a valued employee like the rest of us and, you know, setting the course and destination for their own life. Yeah. Those are just some top level things. We all can do something yeah. to support this. And work. it's what we all want to, to pursue our own dreams, our own. I think you said it well. Nobody even asked, Sonny. Yeah. Serena, thank you so much for joining us today. I, uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and all of the amazing work that you've done for, uh, for those of us in the disability community and, and this fight for equality and for justice and for uh, parity. I just love what you said about parity. It was beautiful. Thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise and shedding light on this important issue. I think um, you gave our, our listeners some real concrete things and ways they can approach this differently and really highlighted how just old and archaic and just uh, dehumanizing it is to to say you're less than and, and we're going to pay you so little. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not okay. It's not okay. And for those of us with disabilities, uh, we're going to get paid uh, in competitive integrated employment. We're going to fight for this guys. <laughs> yes. And I am, I am stoked. I am ten excited. I, down. 10 States down. We're going to gonna go. see, well, and we're going to see federal legislation. Uh, the next time that we have Serena on, we're going to be celebrating the fact that 14 C of the fair labor standards act is no longer a thing. So I just, I just see that in the future. Uh, and with all of our listeners joining together, uh, to, to fight for this, uh, we're going to see change. So Serena, thank you. And uh, we look forward Thank to continuing Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to coming back and celebrating that sea change. <laughs> yes, yes. Absolutely. We always like to give you, our listeners, three different ways that you can make an impact on an issue. A way that you can have an impact as an individual, a way that you can have a systematic impact on the particular issue that we're talking about. And then we want to tell you about a great organization who's making a difference. As we heard from Sunny at the beginning of this interview, we have a responsibility to ensure that sheltered workshops are not the default choice for those of us with disabilities. If you're a school teacher, a social worker, a counselor, you may not have responsibility to decide whether someone's going to a sheltered workshop, but you can help people explore other options and ensure that those of us with disabilities and family members don't think that this is the only option that's before us. We would encourage all of you and just anybody who's listening to this to talk to folks, to ensure that they know that, hey, 14C still exists and that you don't think that this is an appropriate way for those of us with disabilities to be treated in our society and it doesn't lead to inclusive environments. The second thing you can do is help drive for systematic change. Over the years, there have been numerous attempts to try to change or eliminate Section 14C at the federal level. In 2001, for example, Representative Johnny Isaacson introduced H.R. 881. This would have prevented 14C certifications to be issued for a payment of subminimum wage to people who are vision impaired, but no action was taken. More recently, the Raise the Wage Act was introduced in the House, uh, H.R. 582, by Representative Bobby Scott. Uh, which would have stopped the issue of special certificates for subminimum wage after seven years. It passed the House but later died in the Senate without being enacted into law. And the most recent attempt is the Transformation to Competitive Integrated Employment Act, 
also known as HR 2373, which was just introduced in April 2021. Our best course of action right now and what we're encouraging all of our listeners to do is contact your representatives in Congress. Let them know your thoughts on 14C. Share what you heard of Sunny's story and encourage them to support H.R. 2373. We must be vigilant. If our members of Congress know what you care about, they're more likely to do something about that. We have some links on our website at gtindependence.com that will help give you the contact information for your members of Congress if you just simply put in your address. Go there, get their phone number, get their email address, contact them, let them know how you feel about people with disabilities being paid less than minimum wage. And last but not least, we want to give you an organization that you can support. Today, we're supporting the collaboration to promote self-determination. It's a leading national advocacy organization on the topic of 14C. They envision a world where every adult living with a disability, particularly intellectual and developmental disabilities, has an opportunity to live independent, productive lives and self-directed lives through self-determination. They're actively working to eliminate 14C and building systems that encourage an integrated employment. So we'd encourage you guys to go and check them out. They'll be on our website. Again, to all of our listeners, thank you for being a part of the Disability Garrison. Thank you for being a part of this fight for justice and equality. We are proud to stand alongside you. Hi, I'm Abby, executive producer of the Disability Garrison. Our podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. They provide everything you need to run your show, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. Head on over to Podbean at podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of hosting free. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and code PODCAST21. Thanks for listening.